0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna,
1: and me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with Alex and Ilya from Near Protocol to talk about some of their work, their whiteboard sessions, which have become pretty popular. ...and some of the challenges in uh, UX for blockchain.
0: Before we start, we want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits recently released their smart contract audit executive summary. In this, they aggregated the work of 23 smart contract audits and they found that 78% of high-impact, easily exploitable findings are discoverable with automated analysis tools, 50% of all findings will never be found with automated tools, and most surprisingly, unit testing has no impact on security. For more, have a look at their latest blog post at blog.trailofbits.com. We'll also share the link in the show notes. So thank you again, Trail of Bits, for supporting this podcast. And now, here's our interview with Near Protocol. So today we're sitting down with Alex and Ilya from Near Protocol, and we're going to be finding out about their work on sharding, randomness, and usability. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. And as always, we have Frederick. Hello. Maybe tell me a little bit about where you guys started out. What were you working on before you started building Near Protocol?
2: Cool. Okay, so this is Alex. Uh, my background starts in, in college where I was participating in ACMICPC, which is a competitive programming competition where uh, it's, a, it's a world championship in... Uh, where people solve sort of very non-practical problems, uh, whomever can solve the most of them in a uh, in, in short period of time. Uh, but that competition correlates very heavily with people being smart, and so that's where I met many people with whom we work today. Uh, from I- and also ICPC is a great way for people to escape like provincial cities in Russia where I was born. And so after ICPC, I-, I got an offer from Microsoft, and so I worked a little bit at Microsoft for a year and a half. I quickly left Microsoft. It's a very slow-paced environment, and I moved to Silicon Valley, and most of my background, mo- most of my work experience happened at a company called MemSQL, which is a sharded database. Uh, I started there. I was the first engineer, so I joined when there was only three people in the Pomeranian. When I left, it was a 150-people company with, uh, uh, like, multi-million, tens of millions of ARR. Uh, and then after MemSQL, I met Ilya. And we were doing, both of us were doing machine learning back then. I, was, I briefly worked for OpenAI. Ilya will tell what he, what, what he was doing. Uh, machine learning didn't fly. And so, <laughs> uh, and then, yeah. And then, then we will talk how we got into blockchain space and why near.
0: What about you, Ilya? What's your background?
3: Yeah, so for about 10 years, i actually been doing machine learning. I started when I was in the first year of college. Uh, mostly, I was, I'm also from provincial city in Ukraine, so I needed to escape somehow. So I started working for a U.S. company from there. Um, first it was decision trees and then kind of slowly moved to more sophisticated methods, uh, moved to us and, uh, realized that the company I worked for wasn't going anywhere from perspective of like adopting neural networks. So I looked around and saw that Google research is pretty much the place where all of the deep learning researchers are. So I just went directly there. And shortly after I joined, I started leading a team working on natural language so we mostly work on question answering, but also a lot of kind of adjacent topics. So some of the questions on Google.com are answered by our models. Um and then at Google there was kind of development of deep learning net, um kind of frameworks. And then as time went, uh they realized they needed something new, so that's when TensorFlow started. And I wasn't there in the beginning, but I kind of we jumped on it pretty Early and then realize it's not very usable for regular developer. So I built what um, kind of became a framework for regular developers and like data scientists to use TensorFlow. Uh, when I was leaving Google, about 600 teams inside Google used it, and then outside, I don't know, but a lot of people use TensorFlow through that interfaces. So for a while, I was like number three, number four by commits on GitHub and then kind of slowly slided as I (laughs) started doing startups.
0: So did you do some startups afterwards?
3: So yeah, so pretty much I left to join Alex uh, as we were kind of like, both of us wanted to do startups, Google, even though it is faster than Microsoft, but still relatively slow place. Um, And I wanted to do something fast paced. I wanted to actually make an impact. Uh, we joined on kind of our like I also participated in ICPC, not as successfully as Alex was like on national level. You, and, you you advanced to the finals, right? You just messed up your visa. Uh, that was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we pretty much got together uh, through our mutual friend in competitive programming, and then started exploring what what are the ideas we can work on. We have iterated through few, and then went through IC. Well, Alex went through I joined right right when they when they got into it. We kind of end up realizing that the idea we had was not multiple ideas we've had. Multiple ideas we had were not going. Uh Very we hard. did we did work on for a year on this idea of that software is becoming more and more mechanical and there's a lot of parts of it can be automated. And uh, like one of the last things I worked on at Google was machine translation. So we can actually translate natural language to other natural language. Well, can we try natural language to programs? Yeah, and then but then we realized that like doing research in a startup is not like it's not always going to lead to the results at the time frame you have allocated for you as a startup. Yeah, you die. You run out <laughs> of money. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the other reason was it was extremely hard to hire anybody like people who were in machine learning, who were really good, who we needed to hire have extremely high salaries mm. at Google, Microsoft, Uh Just Google. Google
2: Facebook. Google. vacuum cleans them, yeah.
3: Yeah. Pretty much we lost mo- all of our candidates to Google and a few to other places. Yeah. So that's where kind of we started looking at blockchain, partially because uh, some of the friends of ours switched from AI to blockchain. Partially it was like we thought, hey, you know, smart contracts need some of the formal verification tooling. We build a lot of kind of machinery around that, around like search inside the program space. Um, But as we were looking at it, we realized it's pretty underdeveloped space in general, right? Like we were looking at it August or like July last year. Um, At that point, there was no sharded blockchains whatsoever, like not even, not launched, but not even like in active development. Well, that's, that was Zilliqa. So,
2: yes, there was no. <laughs> no sharded blockchains whatsoever being developed.
3: <laughs> and at the same time, nobody actually focused on how to get these networks usable, right? Nobody actually like, hey, how do we get this in front of like regular developer who doesn't need to learn about consensus, doesn't need to spend like months and months learning, but instead just kind of can sit down and write an app in a day, right? That's a huge shortcut.
2: It took us a while to realize that nobody needs a fast blockchain today. Yeah. <laughs> Like, you go to people, you talk to application developers, like, it it could be very fast. And like, yeah, but we have no customers. We don't need a fast blockchain anyway yet.
1: So coming from that more traditional tech company and startup space, you know, I've heard that same story, the exact same story that you just told from multiple other people, many of whom are like one of the teams working on ETH2, where they're kind of going, well, I see all these problems you know what's the most impactful way that I can contribute? I'm gonna you know work on this next generation blockchain in eth too. What made you actually write your own thing? When we started,
2: we quickly realized that what we, especially what we were building at the beginning, was very similar to ETH2.0. And so we were talking to, uh, we talked a little to Vitalik, we talked more to other people from from the from the uh, from Ethereum ecosystem. There's a problem which is. To build such a blockchain, you need very good talent. Right? If you go to our team page, you will see we have people who have decades of experience, people who won ICPC championships. Uh, and that talent is expensive. And Ethereum is super cheap in, in the sense that they pay very little money. And their general approach, right, they, they they have very consolidated research and the development has to completely follow research. So that's also a problem because people who are at the level at, at the highest level, you know, in the, in, in the engineering career, they will not be doing that. They want to be. They want to have freedom. They actually want to, to have this to have a saying. And so we were discussing with Ethereum how we can work together. And I don't think it is possible. At, at, it wasn't possible at that stage. So we're building. So yeah, the answer is fundraise reasonable money uh, for a separate project. Build a separate project. And at the end of the day, uh, Justin Drake told us a very smart thing, which is. At the end of the day, it's not Vitality you know, or Justin or anyone else who decides what Ethereum 2.0 is. So nothing stops us from launching Near and saying, this is Ethereum 2.0. We even have a blog post title, Ethereum 2.0 is Near.
0: Uh. <laughs> Ooh, you're treading in some dangerous territory there.
2: <laughs> from perspective of uh, of like, research and pushing the innovation, people should not care if it's Ethereum or Near. They should care about technology, which is the best. You know, it's, it's not the fight of of brands. It's uh, whomever can push the boundary further. If it's Ethereum, that's yeah. great. That's good for the society. <laughs> if it's us, it's also great. It's also good <laughs> for the society.
0: I think one of the initial impressions that I got, and I think a lot of people get when they meet you, is your ambition. You guys are ballsy. <laughs> you are moving quickly, and you seem to feel very confident about that. What gives you that?
2: But that's because you can see the momentum of other projects. You can compare, right? You can see uh and, and they I think other people are a little slow. Not not all of them. Uh there are some projects which um which are very strong. Right? Naturally Polkadot is one of them. Polkadot is moving fast, especially now that Alistair is, you know, making all the breakthroughs. Uh, <laughs> Telegram open network, nobody knows what's happening, but it seems like they're making progress. So there it's unclear. But most of the projects they're moving pretty slowly. So we feel pretty confident that we can if not beat all of them to shipping, we can we will not be later than them significantly. But,
3: but I think wh- one of the reasons kind of gave us confidence is that we started pretty late, right? But we caught up really quickly. And I mean, we have this whiteboard series, which actually powered in a way some of our catching up and accelerated us. Um, yeah, and,
0: I, actually, that was yeah. one of the things that I wanted to talk to you guys about. At the Zero Knowledge Summit 3, you actually recorded one of the whiteboard sessions. I think you were you're actually recording with Alistair that time. But I did know about the whiteboard sessions before that. And it was a way, I guess, that you, you guys kind of connected with these other teams. But it was also a way where you would spend, you know, I don't know how long you do these things for an hour, two hours, digging in like picking the minds of some of the best researchers in the space. How did you get them to do that?
2: We never had anyone say no. Yeah. I mean, DFINITY said no because they super, you know, it's it's a walled garden. They don't want anyone to know what they're building. Uh, Ava said no, but nobody else ever said no. Everybody wants to be, pe- people want to have exposure and that's an extra way to get exposure to the technical audience. Technical audience loves whiteboard series.
3: And for their community, that's pretty much the only way for them to learn how the protocol works right because like nobody gonna read the white paper into the detail and usually white paper doesn't even have this detail anyway and then you can like get in front of everybody in your community so actually video where you explain the things and somebody actually can ask you very intelligent and like deep questions that's the best way for them to spread their knowledge we also have
2: this saying which is a blockchain protocol without whiteboard session in 2019 is like a blockchain protocol without white paper in 2016.
1: Ooh! <laughs> <laughs> Did you intentionally set out to uh, like that? That is the goal, like bring in the best minds and and learn from them, and like try to figure out what they're doing, so that you can you can like learn from that and take the best of all worlds. Or was it accidental along the way? So
2: it wasn't accidental. They. Sort of the idea to, to do exactly that. It is super convenient that Solana is across the court, is across, like, like they next to us. It's next building. And Zaki is frequently in San Francisco. So we immediately had the first two episodes scheduled. And from there, we saw that it's, uh, it's a good idea. And so learning is one of the biggest reasons why we do that, because we learn a lot. Uh, the second is uh, it's also a great way to educate others, because for many protocols, Pol- Polkadot was no exception in this sense uh there's very little available on the in the like on the web that would explain tech details right so people know about yeah. a lot about Polkadot, that it's you know power chains what it provides you but very little how it works internally uh and obviously there's there's a third reason which is it's also great marketing for near because people see well those two guys they seem they seem to be smart especially the skinnier guys. So why why not?
0: <laughs> no one none of our listeners know who you're talking about, but <laughs> they're going to assume it's you. <laughs> um yeah, that's really so that's interesting. And I think um it's very it's a very creative way to get sort of those three goals met, marketing yourselves, learning and teaching others. Yeah. So as you did these as you did these whiteboard sessions, like you were learning, but do you feel like I mean, is near protocol then sort of an amalgamation of a lot of these kind of insights that you've learned through these whiteboard sessions?
2: I, I know two things that we definitely took from whiteboard sessions, but I but I think others definitely influenced us to think in some direction. Right? But we definitely took ideas from Polkadot and, and from QuarkChain. We had we had our our solutions, but they were inferior. But yeah, certainly just the mindset. As you talk to people, you have those ideas. You might not use them directly, but your mind thinks in, now in a different way, you know, like you get. Uh, it's it's very good to know how every single project in the space works. Yeah. And yeah, that, that definitely helps to design yours. And at least not to... Not, not to not, fall not, into yeah. the
3: same pitfalls that they yeah. fell. As we were talking, like for some projects, you can clearly see where they end up with because of some decisions early on. And that's actually one of the things we... Make sure that we don't get kind of into the hole because of something we decided to do before. Like we actually changed fully our protocol in April. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and that is like I'm pretty sure impossible for every other blockchain. So so far we talked because they kind of very focused on what they said they will build, and for us it's like we we want to achieve the goal of actually like scalable, usable blockchain and not, like, build very specific consensus or sharding or whatever.
2: Yeah. Yeah, blockchain has this concept of differentiation where every protocol needs to have this, like, you know, unique thingy. And that's what identifies it, like national signatures for DFINITY or this you know, hidden validators for Algorand. And they cannot walk away from that feature because that will remove their identity. Hmm. Uh, And we we sort of never develop that unique feature. And so we can can do whatever. We, We don't have this pressure from the society
0: interesting uh, yeah
1: yeah i think you you have i mean your attitude in general is very anti-maximalist which i think (laughs) is really good and like uh, like you said like the best technology should be the one that wins i I don't necessarily believe that's how the world works unfortunately but (laughs) if, if we're lucky it does and and the best technology wins and like regardless of you know who has tokens and what or who gains economically from that as long as it like like forward society that's good um and i think to actually act on that and to to move down that path you have to be very willing to throw away things and say no th- this isn't the best thing like we're not working on the best thing anymore we need to just, you know start over or like take this other idea and not get fixated on on things
0: yep. so one of the things we haven't really done yet is explain what near protocol is um, <laughs> yep. but maybe it's challenging to do so because like, it sounds like the way you've just described it, it's not necessarily like there's one main feature that differentiates it. But why don't you explain? Explain to us what Near Protocol is.
2: Okay, so, so Near Protocol, we usually, as Ilya mentioned at the beginning, Near Protocol mission is to build the most usable blockchain, a blockchain on which people can actually build applications and other users can use them. And it has many aspects, one of which is scalability. Right? So a blockchain which powers applications for a decentralized web, it needs to be scalable. So sharding is one big part of, of NIR. and that's one of the biggest areas of research we do here. Uh, but we also do a lot of other improvements on the UX side so that people can actually use it. So we can cover sharding first. Uh, and I, I, will, I will presume that the listener doesn't know anything about sharding, so they didn't read you know our stuff. And so sharding generally, the way you look at it is you know, you had one blockchain before, uh, and it was slow. Now you have ten blockchains, each of them as fast as as the one. Now 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 you're 10x faster if
0: you connect and them. And that's sort of,
2: and you yes, and so the connect the connect them is sort of one hard part. And another hard part is how do you keep them secure? Because you know, if you get blockchain uh, Bitcoin Cash and you split it in two, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin the other one, uh, the 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 hash power in each of them is now twice as little. Mm. Right. So corrupting any of them is twice as as little. So if Bitcoin the other one again splits. Uh that is each of them will not be as secure as the original one. And uh if you read less sophisticated sharding papers, I will not be naming names, uh, they usually think from perspective of how we can prevent forks on the shards. Uh and that can that's a very simple problem. Everybody everybody uses the same solution, which is let's have one huge blockchain which is overarching all the small blockchains, and the large blockchain has the full security of the system, and the small blockchains will be snapshotting. Like they produce blocks, and every now and then they will snapshot the block to the large one, and you cannot fork beyond that point. And so now if you want to fork a small blockchain, you need to fork a big blockchain. Hmm. This is how Cosmos Hub operates. This is how I'm pretty sure relay chain works in Polkadot, this is beacon chain in Ethereum. Uh, and that problem sort of solved, but many people don't who design sharding, they don't pay as much attention to two bigger problems. One of which is that You know, today, if you run a full node in Ethereum, you validate every block. And that means that if someone creates an invalid block, that invalid block, nobody will ever respect it. People will just look at it, they will see it as invalid, they will discard it. And in sharding, you cannot do that anymore. You cannot... The entire premise of sharding is that nobody can validate all the shards. And so, you will end up in a situation where, in a particular shard, you sort of have to trust people who who validate the shard. You have to trust the algorithm that selects validators, that it is... Sufficiently robust so that the validators, so that malicious actor cannot assign too many of of their validators to the shard, and you need to trust whatever those validators sign in the shard. And so, if the shard is corrupted in some way, they actually can create an invalid block now. And the beacon chain or relay chain or hub, they cannot do anything about it because all they can do is validate headers. They don't have capacity themselves to validate every block, and so that becomes a huge problem. uh, And very few projects directly address it so if you go through the materials available you will see it's polka dot who addresses it directly it's ethereum it's i think it's telegram open network it's been a while since i read it and that's practically it all right so most of the other sharded projects that you see they either pretend it doesn't exist at all or they say you know that's that's very unlikely that the shard will be corrupted so we can completely mm. ignore the problem as well and that problem. Uh, it sort of goes side by side with another problem, which is called data availability problem, which is even if you find a way uh, which provides better, like you find a way to have more people validate the shard or like have external people who sort of have incentive to validate the shard. It only works if they can actually get the blocks produced for the shard. And what a malicious actor can do is they can produce an invalid block, send the header to the beacon chain or to the light clients, but never, never disclose the block. And so nobody sees the block, nobody can validate it, no matter which techniques you have to ensure the validity of the block, all those techniques fall apart if the block is not available. And that's a, a bigger problem. This is a thing where Polkadot... Uh, th- that's what we took from Polkadot, effectively. Polkadot has a great solution for data availability, and we just like, we practically use the same one, effectively, now. Hmm. Uh, Ethereum also has a decent one, but Ethereum is, mo- is less coherent. Ethereum just put a lot of small techniques that together give you meaning- meaningful... Sort of certainty that data is available. While in Polkadot, it's very, it's very specific. You know exactly what needs to happen for data not to be available. Who needs to? Uh, how many people will get slashed? Uh, so I, I think Polkadot's approach there is just, uh, it, it's the best we have today in the industry. So it makes sense just to use it. Uh, yeah. And so we, our entire design. Why it took us so long, uh, is that we were thinking, how do we solve those problems? So until April. We were struggling and in April we sort of finally figured out a design which sort of addresses them. Right, so we have this paper uh, that describes it in detail. We, we might cover it today in, in less detail, but the entirety of our design revolves around how, how do you solve data availability and state state validity in a coherent way so that people who use the network, they're they certain that, you know, after 100 years every single shard only had valid state transitions.
1: You were talking about this, uh, you know, most other protocols having like a relay chain or a beacon chain. You're talking about this as if you don't. So do you have some other way of coordinating these shards?
2: Right. So I actually think it's exactly the other way around. We only have the beacon chain. So uh, the biggest thing we changed in the design, which which I think is a huge simplification compared to many other sharded designs, is that we only have one blockchain, uh, which we call main chain sometimes to to avoid confusion in the context of other sharded protocols, so we have the main chain, and on the main chain, every block logically has all the transactions for all the shards right so it's a it's a it's a chain of huge blocks where every block is could be so big that nobody can download it but uh but physically the block is split into smaller chunks, one per shard, and so people download those chunks and then uh, like every most of the things happen on the chunk level, so you can think of it as like small shard chains consisting of chunks, but that's not how we look at it. We look at it as one huge blockchain, which which contains those logical humongous blocks.
1: It almost looks a little bit more like a traditional database sharding solution than.
2: Yes, I don't. I don't know why could that happen to our <laughs> protocol, uh, <laughs> but this 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 is a huge simplification because you only have one fork choice rule in the entire protocol. You only have one finality gadget if you have one, right? So it simplifies so many things, uh, and. Uh, and then reasoning about security, reasoning about the design is significantly easier, right? Which is, I guess it's very important for people who try to assess the security for themselves to figure out if they want to use the protocol.
3: Yeah, it was repeatedly where where we were trying to figure out something like, that is way too complex, let's simplify this, let's simplify this, until it's like easy and that you can explain it in like 10 minutes. And that like that's a general goal because if you think of like successful blockchains so far, they have been like extremely simple.
0: You just mentioned that it ended up looking a little bit like a traditional database sharding setup, but like, is that? Do you find as you're going through this process that you understand better why those decisions were taken back then when that was being developed? Like, do you actually feel like this is helping you understand like computer science history?
2: I, I think in the database world, sharding is is easier. There was no unsolved problems there, Th- though. I wasn't I wasn't back then.
0: Uh, it's hard to tell. No, I'm sure that there was unsolved problems that they solved. Yeah. It's just solved so, now <laughs> so so there, are, there there
2: are in general very few shorted databases actually, and many of them, like in 2011, when we started building memSQL, the space was the same. There was MongoDb and MongoDb will be Zilica. It's a very popular database which technologically is very uh, ma <laughs> and there was MemSQL which was sort of near, which was uh it it, it was a very good technology, but it didn't have that sort of uh, I I call it questionable marketing (laughs) right it didn't have that questionable marketing Uh, and it enrolled I think better for memsql than for mongodb on the long term so it's hard to tell mongodb is also doing pretty good (laughs) right but in general sharding sharded databases they generally exist within google within facebook and very few of them are externally facing and their designs are mostly kind of similar so if you look at even mongo memsql Cassandra, uh, and, and all of them. It, it's sort of similar, and it's sort of what you would come up with if you just sit without having any knowledge and think how you would chart a database. So it's not... Uh, I don't think there's anything groundbreaking there. Uh, while with And the same actually goes to blockchains, right? We we came up with near design with, before we talked to Ethereum, then we talked to Ethereum, and design was the same. And if you talk to other network, their design is the same, and they started also before Ethereum published their materials, right? So that's sort of that hub and spokes. This is what you would come up with if you just sit with a pen and paper and try to figure out sharding, mm-hmm. right? It's the little details like state validity, which are hard.
0: So far, we've been talking about sharding. What about the usability? What does that mean to you guys when you say like you want it to be usable? So
3: this actually has two components of it. The, like we are engineers ourselves, you know, we tried to build a company before. So a lot of it does kind of coming from perspective of can I build a company can I build the application on this as a developer as you know as entrepreneur and right now the answer is no like we have seen a lot of people trying and the only thing that actually succeeded even to some extent is gambling um, so a lot of it is like how can we solve these problems how can we first of all make this easy to use for an engineer, right? Like the first time I tried to use Ethereum, right? The first time I came to uh, a hackathon, right? It took me like six hours just to set up everything, right? And then while I was setting up, I also was reading like all the blog posts about Solidity because there's no like documentation in one place, at, at least at that point. So like this is kind of, you know, all the small issues and that, I mean, that's the same thing I learned before working on TensorFlow, right? It's the underlying engine can be amazing if you cannot like communicate it through a simple kind of principles to the end developer in this case, they will not be able to use it. So you will be only like marketing for very small Mm. uh, kind of number of developers. So that's the first thing we focus on is how can we make developers on board really fast, iterate really fast and kind of over time actually build a business out of it. So Right away we build a online IDE which is kind of a fiddle like where you can you can go to URL right now, near.dev, you can create a project from a template, and you can launch your first application on near in 15 seconds. Right. So that actually will deploy on testnet, we'll sp- pull up the full front end, and you can you know interact with the application. And from there you can start iterating. We use WebAssembly as kind of you know already, I think, generally accepted. Uh, VM, but on top of it we've been working very closely with this team called AssemblyScript that actually compiles uh, TypeScript, which is JavaScript with types, into WebAssembly. And this is pretty much unlocks web developers, front-end developers, full-stack developers who know how to write in JavaScript, who know Node.js, who know React, to start building applications. So that's like a huge market, right? There's millions of people who know JavaScript. And then, at the same time, we actually, like, Trying to figure out what are the business models that people can have, right? Like one of the main, like we talked with actually with a lot of developers as well. We're not just talking with projects kind of protocols, but also we're trying to figure out what are the missing pieces actually on like application layer. So a lot of it is like people want to pay for transaction fees for their users because they want to charge them in some other way. Uh some of them instead wanna charge users more than the usual transaction fee to kind of accumulate more reward from that. So all of this is kind of implemented on a protocol level for in our case.
0: Hmm. Um, is this a it's it sounds like there's a few projects, there's echoes of a few projects that we've come across in the past. Like the templating, is it similar to like maybe what Zeppelin was doing? Is well, is the is the usability for JS developers a little bit like what Agoric has been proposing?
2: Yeah. And Portis. And a couple others.
0: Yeah, this is interesting. So it's like you're. I can sort of see that. Like you're pulling together a few of these unique features. From
3: our perspective, we're not like. I mean, you know, we're talking with a lot with everybody, and we're trying to fi- get the best ideas. But in my head, at least, it's it's more of a stack, right? Like if you go to develop on like Google Cloud or Amazon Cloud, right? Yes, yeah, so you get like a raw machine, and that was kind of their success. But really, you get, like, a full stack of, you know, different layers of uh, infrastructure, right? Hmm. And if you think of it, they actually didn't launch AWS without the front end, right? They launched AWS front end and actually command line, I think, come in later. Like, right now, existing blockchains come in the other way. They come in with, like, yeah. somewhere we have a cloud, a blockchain, and then here's a command line that, like, somewhat works. And then figure it out.
2: Huh. But also on Ethereum, all those projects, they they solve many problems independently, but those projects work very, very badly together, right? So someone, I was talking like a few days ago with someone who was using Loom network for, because Ethereum is too slow, so they were using Loom. But they were also using, I think, Portis uh, so that people can use it easier. But Portis and Loom were not cooperating together, right? And so if they also want to use meta transactions uh well n- now they have three of those <laughs> together, right? That need to work together. And so if they all exist on the protocol level from day one, that's that's significantly easier for the developer because they don't need to connect multiple independent libraries which don't necessarily which are not necessarily designed with each other in mind.
1: Yeah. I mean I feel like a lot of these issues are an issue of time. And I wonder Well, how you see that where like you are right now and, and, you know, Ethereum is coming out of the space, completely agree. Like it comes from a very developer centric view of like, yeah, you ship a CLI first and just hope that people use it for good things. But then as it's grown, you know, it's a decentralized project. We want to encourage as many people to contribute to as many things as possible. You could build a better, more coherent product and UX if it's one company shipping everything for this whole ecosystem but then you're going against the values of the community and, and wanting everything to be decentralized. So how do you find that balance?
2: It, it's different values. Decentralization of the of the protocol itself is the biggest value that it provides. Decentralization of development is desirable, uh, but it's very slow, as we can see. right? So Ethereum, yeah. if, if you look the how Serenity is being developed, right? they have very strong teams working on it, but it's still very slow because the effort is decentralized. It, there's always going to be some... Time penalty for decentralization, and so at least in the in the early days, uh, the protocol will benefit a lot if the development is centralized. Uh, and the problem there that needs to be solved, the only problem that needs to be solved, is how do you have centralized development on a decentralized protocol? And that we're doing in a way uh, through, like effectively, we have this concept called decentralized maintainer. No benevolent maintainer benevolent maintainer, for, maintainer now. for now, which is uh, it's it's a, it's a play of words, right? Uh, on Benevolent Dictator for Life. Hmm. Uh, but Benevolent Maintainer for now is the entity which is, uh, it's on the protocol level, there's an entity which which does the development. And, there's a, and there are upgrades sort of on the protocol level, not as hardcore as Polkadot, where you can you can roll out a binary on the protocol level. In our case, it's more of, on the protocol level, you can say which binary needs to be rolled out, right? People still need to do it manually. Uh, and there's some time when people can say that people have to, to review the changes to to agree on them, and Uh, for as long as Near Inc. is behaving reasonably and not doing anything stupid, people will be... uh, Like, the updates are going to be rolling out. And if if at any point we go wrong, people can just vote us out. And there are multiple levels of how that can happen. But effectively, for as long as we're doing a good thing, people will continue keeping Near Inc. as the developer. And at the end of the day, it can always move to decentralized. Even if we don't do anything wrong, people at some point can say, okay, near Protocol is sufficiently developed, we don't benefit as much from the pace of the development anymore it's good to 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 reduce the risk right because still it could be that we're shipping something reasonable but like slightly biased towards what we want right so at some point people might want to move to completely decentralized development but Mm -hmm. early on definitely uh, like ethereum didn't cross that line at which decentralized development actually helps it at this point it still definitely hurts it
1: yeah, it sounds like a similar story to the Zcash company, where it's kind of took on you know we're we're shipping this over the next two years and got the the founders reward for that, and then now like a couple of years in, they're kind of going, well, maybe we should involve a foundation and like some other parties to start decentralizing this.
0: So, like actually, on that topic though, does near is near protocol a company? Is it an inc?
3: So, near Protocol itself will be a Swiss foundation. Okay. And, like, we still figure, like, the idea of how to organize governance, like, that's unsolved problem. I mean, I'm sure you guys had guests talking about this here. And and the goal is, like, at the end, to have a decentralized governance that actually operates. So far, we have not seen anything working. Like, we're talking with, you know, people who are working on this, and I think we actually uh, may talk about, like, There will be some interesting conversations about it, Web3, coming up. But uh, before that is done, we kind of will go same way as Ethereum. So it will be a foundation. And it will be sponsoring, in this case, benevolent Maintainer, which is near Inc., to continue development with the goal of eventually decentralizing it and eventually uh, kind of both removing benevolent Maintainer. That's why it's for now but also getting a lot more different teams involved in this on different levels. And Near Inc. is a Delaware company, which operates from California,
2: so it's separate.
0: And there's a Near token, I guess? Yes. Yes. Do you guys have any sort of founder reward or block reward built into it? Or are you thinking of that?
3: So it is proof of stake. And in proof of stake, you actually need to launch with what we call 100% of tokens. So whatever is launched, that is 100% of tokens. And then... Well, you don't have to. You can st- you can still have s- limited
2: supply, but I don't believe in limited supply. Uh, yeah.
3: Well, the thing is, like, all the miners' reward will go to validators, which are token holders okay. already. Like, you, by, by doing miner reward, you're not getting more people. So really, you need to distribute kind of from the beginning. That's one of the hardest parts of Proof of Stake. So we kind of, like, have some allocation from that uh, initial supply, and and you would then what...
0: become validators in order to continue funding the operation.
3: If
2: if we want to, uh, yeah.
1: What's your token distribution like? like? How are you planning to actually get the tokens into as many hands as you want? Because, like you said, that like that's a fundamentally very hard problem.
3: It
2: is, yeah. So, so I think our token distribution is one of the most. We we have I think one of the least allocations to investors of all the protocols being built. Though I'm still not very happy with it, <laughs> but we have yeah we have 15 percent that went to investors, uh, and we have twelve to the team. Twelve to the team, yes. Uh, everything else we want to uh, for everything else we, we don't have the exact protocol yet. But the 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 goal is to have distribution such that from the perspective of an external observer, it is clearly that it was done in a decentralized way. That that it's a, it's a very wide distribution. So it could be. Some uh, some of them can be sold with KYC with very little checks. Some of that can be log drop on Ethereum. Some of them can, can be airdrop on like old GitHub and Reddit, uh, Reddit accounts.
3: Yeah, wh- one of the interesting things is uh, we want to go over all of the GitHub repositories that we use as dependencies for our protocol, which includes, I don't know, like maybe 20,000 different repositories, find the people who contributed to them and actually give them the tokens, because they mm-hmm. kind of were involved in building this, even though not directly.
1: That's a cool idea, yeah. It's
0: going to be a lot of manual work there, right? Some of it is
3: manual, yes. Uh, and the handshake actually did sounds like a kind of interesting work already on how to organize this uh, process as well. But yeah, a lot of it is kind of just like, through these procedures, figure out different slices of interesting audiences and either reward them or sell to them the tokens, obviously following all the regulations and rules.
1: I really like uh, Handshake's distribution model. We should have uh, a separate episode on that at some point. (laughs) (laughs) So
2: so there's another very interesting topic to discuss around um, sort of token rewards, etc. Which is one of the big values that blockchain provides in the context of Web3 is composability. In the sense that someone can build Uh, We we can now have a, a thing that we called open state services, right, which is a progression from open source, where you can have, for example, a social graph as a service or some sort of a database as a service where someone maintains it, but it's open state and everyone can use it, everyone can contribute to it following some rules that are written in the smart contract, right? The problem with those, which is also a problem with open source today, is that monetizing them would be super hard. If you have a social graph on the blockchain, uh, like imagine launching it today on Ethereum. Most likely, the way you will monetize it is you're going to come up with some token with some ridiculous token economy, which doesn't work naturally, uh, and it will it will it will die out eventually, right? So what we want to do is we want to build a system in which whenever a transaction is invoked, uh, as as some some percentage of the transaction fee is distributed across all the maintainers of the smart contracts uh, that were invoked as part of the transaction invocation, right? So if, oh, wow. if something depends on the social graph, there's a social network or there's some other application that uses the social graph, then every time it is invoked, a little, uh, a little part of the reward will go to, this, to, the, to the maintainer. And,
0: of a you know, specific you know, smart contract.
3: Or
2: yeah, or it could go to the smart
3: contract. Like,
0: yeah, exa- go-
2: exactly how it goes it is, to the yeah.
3: smart contract, and then developer decides how it's allocated to the. Oh, I see.
2: Yeah, it could be a DAO that sits on top of it, which which is you know distributes it, yeah. or it could be a particular person who built it who just put his key in there and it goes to him. And the idea here is that for many people today, you know, like if a person lives in in a rural rural area of Russia, but they are a very good developer, that's actually a very meaningful thing for them to do. Because, you know, developers are very pro-open source, pro-open state. That's something that correlates with their values a lot. Way more than, you know, working on open source and building another CRM system, right? And so that's something they would love to do. And the money that will that will go to them through such a system is actually something that is meaningful for them. If they mo- launch multiple of them, they can actually make a living of that without any token models or anything like that uh, and without imposing this complexity on the user so they don't have to pay lemon coin to drink lemonade in
3: the in the <laughs> desert. <laughs> <laughs> on, on this note, we actually have a beta program to pretty much get the early developers and early entrepreneurs into the ecosystem, and we help them both on kind of technical mentorship side, uh, connections, and some rewards as like part of the initial distribution.
1: There's a lot of talk in the blockchain space about like unbank banking the unbanked and and like talking about you know serving underserved communities and uh there's very little action to actually show for that and that people actually try to do that or intend even intend to do that uh but I mean th- this actually sounds like a plausible approach to try to help people in countries who don't have stable income or like where, where things are uh, not as simple as, you know, in Sweden where you have a perfect safety net and everything <laughs> is jolly all day. Um, <laughs> but cold. <yeah. laughs> Maybe not now. <laughs>
0: um,
1: yeah. So that's an interesting model. One thing I'm I'm curious about is, is, you know, on on a similar line, one of my pet peeves is actually addressing JavaScript developers, because like on one hand, I completely see the arguments in the case for it. Uh, like we in, in Polkadot, like we're building a smart contract language in Rust, which has a very, very different type of audience. And but we're still on WebAssembly, so we will eventually have a JavaScript or a TypeScript, like you said, smart contract language as well. And I'm really scared of getting JavaScript developers into smart contract development. As someone who's been bitten by massive bugs that you know, <laughs> you know, seemed trivial or like were actually you know hard to spot in some ways. Um, yeah, it's just such a different mindset to go from like JavaScript development on a CRM app to writing a contract that manages a billion dollars or whatever.
3: Well, not not every contract needs to manage a billion dollars. That That's kind of our point. Like, if you want to man- manage even millions of dollars, you should use Rust. And we support Rust. And it's But the problem really is that you don't it. know
1: at the outset. Like, that was our problem with the multisig. Like, we built it because, of, like, someone was going to put 20 bucks in it. Then mm-hmm. the next day, there's $120 million in it. You don't <laughs> know this up front. So how do you, like, if you start building your app in JavaScript and it becomes super popular, it will manage hundreds of millions of dollars.
2: Well, at that point, there's always a risk, right? Even if you build it in Rust, you have a risk of yeah, messing of course. it up, right? And uh, so, so I don't think we can address that particular risk, but the thinking more here is that you, JavaScript is very good for people to, to join and, and onboard and learn about the protocol, right? But for more serious projects, people should use not even Rust, but there there are other languages being developed. There's Pact, yeah, which uh, I don't know much about Pact, but Pact looks like a very interesting project. Yeah, uh, and I don't know if it can pass WebAssembly, but ultimately, even if it doesn't, it should be possible to make it right. S- some yeah.
1: someone will make like a super mm-hmm. nice formally verified whatever language right. for WebAssembly. Yes. I'm sure. And
2: and so ideally, you want everything that touches money to be formally verified. But many things in Web three are not as crucial to to not having bugs, and. Uh,
3: like, and in the example it, it, of a social graph, right? it's not like you're really managing metadata, and for that, you may have some money somewhere involved in around the ecosystem, but like the main logic of the metadata doesn't need to actually uh, carry such a like restricted set
0: does does near i mean near has a token, but does near also have like a native language or a smart contract language of any sort?
3: No, I mean it's all WebAssembly so any languages uh. that Compiled WebAssembly work. Uh, TypeScript with AssemblyScript compiler specifically is the language we have in our IDE and a lot of tooling we have. But we also support Rust, uh, so we have bindings for Rust, and then pretty much checker system can build any other bindings as well. It's relatively easy. <laughs>
0: Going back to that question about building everything, though, and like you talked about these different applications that don't work well together. So, if if you guys are building it, like, how bigger is your team? How many people
3: is it? So near we're right now twenty one. I think it's
2: it's thirty if you count all the remote people. Like close to thirty, it's between twenty and thirty. Okay, <laughs> we, we, we're getting more and more decentralized yeah. in the world, and so now we don't have. A single place where everybody listed. Before it was easier.
0: <laughs> but so, go, but going back to that, like, how would, you must still have to make choices, and you can't possibly be building every piece of this all at once. So, like, how are you making those trade-offs? Like, what what are you focusing on?
3: So, we focus on from perspective of like, what is a flow that as a end user I expect, right? So, like, oh, when by end user here I mean developer and like a consumer. Both. So as like a developer, I want to have a flow where like I land, I start building. I don't want to build in the browser; that's weird. I start building locally. I deploy the app. I share it with my friend, and then this friend actually can open this app, start using it without learning about blockchain, without learning about what is the private keys are. All of this like kind without, of without not, having tokens. Without, yeah, without requiring to buy tokens, going to exchange, going through KYC, right? Just start using the app, figuring out, oh, this is actually an interesting app. And then, like, oh, okay, like, if I want more functionality, I should go and buy tokens, right? So, like, example would be, like, I'm building a chess app, right? Like, I landed on a page, I, like, build up the thing. I'm like, hey... There's actually like interesting types of models I can build on top of it. I cover the fees, but people f- pay, for example, per game or people bet or people do something else, right? I, la- I launch it. I send the link to my friend. He clicks on it. He needs to sign up some way. So there's keys created and all this, but it's not shown to to them. And then they start using it. And then over time, they kind of figure out that, hey, for more functionality, you do this. And more security and more security and for more security you do like the other way right so like our accounts actually support a way to swap the keys that you have access to so you can actually even though you maybe create an account on a not very secure place, you can actually upgrade your security by just swapping mm-hmm. keys out or adding keys or permissioning keys there's all kinds of functionality on that so that is kind of main like flow that we're optimizing for, and we want that like the way, the way we call it is like a hackathon package. Like you should be in, you know, two days, you should be able to build a full app, launch it, and get like 10, ten of your friends working on it, like using it. Um, and then from there, like everything else is kind of building the ecosystem, right? And, and we're actually starting to involve external uh, people as well as companies to help us with the ecosystem as well.
0: Hmm. I kind of want to touch a little bit more on that concept of trade-offs, um, I had mentioned it sort of earlier on in this episode. You guys have hinted at a few of them. So in this case, your focus on UX and that flow. What do you think is the trade-off then? What what aren't you doing? What can't you do right now?
2: <laughs> I think the more interesting trade-off here is uh, I, I don't want to say what we're not doing because you know people, <laughs> people like hearing negative things and then you know latch on them and it's going to be all over Twitter if if someone doesn't <laughs> like us after all. Uh, but an interesting trade-off here is that a good UX and good security do not go side by side. Uh, it, do- it doesn't work out. There's a reason why Bitcoin is so unusable, is that you do need to understand the key management. You do need to uh, you do need to install external third-party software, or ideally compile it from source and run uh, if you want the security. Right? If you if you want to provide you with an incredible user experience where you open a website and interact with it, somewhere the security should be compromised. Right. And so we have this concept called progressive security, which effectively says when you join an application, like you, you, you start playing a game, you don't need the full security. You're not having one million dollars worth of Bitcoin there or near tokens. Right. And so at that point, you get reasonable security, meaningful security with some assumptions that, you know, a company like hypothetical Coinbase will not go rogue on you because that will hurt their business. Right. But once you get assets you care about, once you have that crypto kitty whom you love so much, you will not be able to lose it, you know, tolerate losing it. Then you can actually move to proper security. You can install the browser plugin or wallet application. You can actually create your own key pair and understand how to manage it. But that all happens when you actually have assets you care about. Unlike today, you go to CryptoKitties and they give you the list of, of steps you need to do before you play. You don't have any Kitties yet. Right, you don't even know what it is. Yeah, and suddenly you have to go through so many uh, hurdles to get there.
0: Yeah, it's not only UX then what you're talking about there, it's also like just onboarding. Right, which is onboarding
2: is is part of UX, yes. A big part of UX. Yeah,
1: and I'd say like onboarding is for sure the thing that normal people complain about the most i mean uh, just what you said earlier going to an exchange and doing kyc just to get some token to be able to do anything is a terrible experience and um, yeah so I, i think onboarding there is an important thing so when i talked to you guys last year i think it was you were talking a lot about like trying to have being able to validate on phones, to have like micro loans, to be able to enter into validation and then earn returns on those and pay back the loan—is any of this remaining in the protocol? It's gone. All right.
2: <laughs> it, 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 it gets like like many people when they talk about near, they, they they constantly get it from somewhere. I don't know from where. There's nobody <laughs> online where we mention it.
3: Uh, But every, yeah, and and people sort of like it. I don't know. Maybe maybe we should. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) we realize that practically it doesn't make sense right now because, like, we don't really need millions of devices.
2: Yeah.
3: We're we're Mm. not at that scale yet. Yeah, the the world is not at that scale of using
2: blockchain yet to to need millions of devices.
1: So, a follow up question there and on the trade offs then is so like looking at one of your like randomness papers uh, there's a very interesting and like direct trade-off e- like directly in the abstract it says something like we've designed a randomness protocol that doesn't need vdfs it doesn't need um, DKG. dkg but it has ordo and cubed uh, ma- network messages mm-hmm. and that sort of means that you know it'll be extremely hard to have more than like ten validators or ten participants in this protocol
2: or you can have a hundred because oven cubed means that each of them only receives or sends oven squared, which is like ten kilobytes well
1: well it depends on how big kilobytes. the messages are if there's ten thousand messages and they're all yeah a kilobyte, then that'll max out any normal person's yeah. bandwidth well, and like yeah, it what, becomes, what they, but yeah. maybe like, yeah, if they're, you know, well endowed machines and they, mm-hmm. they, uh, are running in some sane data center with a good connection, etc. Um, but that's like a very clear trade off, right? Where Ethereum says, oh, we're going to have four million validators and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, how do you think about those kind of technical trade offs? You, you said already, like we're not aiming at a million machines. So where do you place your, you know, what, what are you optimizing
3: for?
2: so so one one quick thing about the randomness is that Oven cubed is each person actually sends linear number of messages, each of them is linear in size, right so you send and receive one hundred messages, and each of them is on the order of hundred multiplied by the size of the encrypted message, so like thirty two three kilobytes each message, thirty kilobytes each person receives and sends and this randomness you don't do it very frequently right because the primary use case is rotating validators, so technically you have a full day. To do that, to, to execute that protocol. And no. so at that point, the N cube trade off is way worth removing complex crypt- cryptography as cryptogra- cryptographic assumptions, right? Because DKG is a very complex protocol. Yeah. Uh, even th- like the recent advances, they're still super complex. Uh, and I-, I, think, I think VDFs are great. And once ASICs are there, that's something like clearly we will consider at least consider switching to them. But today, we, we need the beacon today. Right? If we want to launch this year, we need a randomness beacon. And uh, the protocol we have is very good. And, well, it's good enough. And it actually, it is reducible to n squared with some com- complexity, but we don't need it yet. Generally, to answer the full qu- the, the, the more general question, we target to have on the order of maybe 100 people per shard today. So, so there are two different, like in the terms, there are collators and, and validators. We want to have on the order of 100 validators. Uh, per shard, where where, where hundred doesn't necessarily mean different entities, right? Because we yeah. cannot have identity on that level. It means different stakes, right? So between those hundred, some of them can intersect. Uh, we have fewer collators because collators, the only thing they can do is stall, uh, and that is not as dangerous as allowing invalid state transition to go through. Yeah. Right. yeah. So so that's give or take the current thinking. And so the glo- the total number of of block producers in the chain is also in the order of a hundred. So hundred people. At in any given day, create blocks for that day. The next day, they reshuffle. We get the new hundred people, uh, and that's that's early on. That's already. I mean, you know, we're not Ethereum, so the number of people whom we will have who will give sufficient who will sufficiently care that's approximately what we can get. Right.
0: So where where are you guys at right now with the project? We've heard a little bit of your history from like two thousand <laughs> summer two thousand eighteen. In April, you made a big shift. Do you guys have a testnet? Where are you at?
3: Yeah, so since February, we've been actually running testnets. So first testnet had like one node, but had like WebAssembly, Runtime, IDE, all of the tooling. Uh, We had a bunch of like hackathons, actually, where people were building stuff on this, including non-blockchain hackathon, where we had like nine teams build some interesting applications. Um, and then underneath, we've actually been, like, iterating. And then since April, we've actually been running, right now, one shard with the idea of hard forking that current testnet into multi-shard in a few weeks. Yeah, we wanted to do it in a week, but <laughs> as usual, it is delayed yeah. a little. But yeah, so right now, if you look at our GitHub, like, there's actually, I mean, everything is open, everything on GitHub. You can see our history of development and iteration as well. But uh, the kind of sharding is in a separate branch. We pretty much make stabilizing it. And our like master branch is what's launched right now on the test net. People can actually participate. There's documentation how to stake. Uh, but we're kind of not promoting it as of yet until we finalize sharding. And then we're planning to launch our version of games of stake. So this will be kind of an interesting competition of people trying to break our network uh, with, you know, some incentives to do that.
0: When do you have, a, when's your plan to do that?
3: Uh, so the plan right now is September 15th. Oh, soon. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Well, we want, we want to launch the main net
2: before the end of the year. So we, cool. we need to launch this. We call it stake Wars. We need to launch the stake Wars sort of soon.
0: Well, you guys are definitely moving fast and you have a very productive energy. And it's, really, it's been really <laughs> great talking to you guys and learning about how this all works. So thank you so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting. It was a great conversation. Cool. Thank
2: you very much. uh, Yeah, so make sure to check out our beta program, uh, right? If you're building applications, you should consider building them on Near. Then actually people will be able to use them. (laughs) You will, you know, your application (laughs) will go to the moon. (laughs) No, Uh scratch that, scratch that, scratch that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, thanks again, guys. And uh, to our listeners, thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for listening.